This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. The heart is a vital biological pump, beating around a billion times in a lifetime. But faulty genes can cause big problems. So I look at conditions that cause young people to be at risk of catastrophic changes in the heart that just cause you to drop down dead. Plus, taming the tiger genome, solving citrus sickness, and our gene of the month is for all you hopeless romantics out there. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for October 2013 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. A heartbeat is the sound of life itself, and our hearts beat thousands of times a day, pumping blood round the body. But things can go wrong. Cardiovascular diseases, like heart attacks and stroke, are responsible for around one in four deaths here in the UK, and someone in the country dies of a heart attack every seven minutes. As you might expect, genes play a role in our individual risk of heart problems, so I spoke to Professor Arun Hingarani, Director of the UCL Institute of Cardiovascular Science, to find out what we know so far about the genetics of heart disease. There's been an increase in our understanding of the role of genes in cardiovascular disease over the last decade or so. So it's long been known that heart disease tends to run in families. There are a few rare conditions um, that are caused by single genes. They tend to be quite rare, but the genetic effects tend to be quite large. Most of the common cardiovascular diseases uh, in late life also have a genetic contribution. And the model has been uh, that probably the risk is increased by small effects of a very large number of genes and the challenge has been to try and identify those genes. So if you have a lot of these kind of bad variations you're much more likely to get heart disease or related condition and if you only have a few your risk is lower. Exactly right. So the challenge has been to try and identify which were the points in the genome where these variants lie that influence disease susceptibility. So over the last 10 years or so, there's been an increase in our understanding of this through what are called genome-wide association studies. And typically what these do is that they compare the frequency of these common variants in the genome between people who have the disease and people who don't. And where there's a difference in frequency of variants in the disease cases versus the controls, that highlights a point in the genome that contain genes that influence disease risk. So for coronary heart disease, for example, we know that there are about 46 or so regions of the genome that influence your risk of suffering a heart attack. We hear all the time that there are things about diet and exercise and salt and all these things we can do to reduce our risk of cardiovascular disease. What proportion is the influence that's in our genomes? It's clearly immensely important that dietary and lifestyle factors are are corrected to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. So the things that are particularly important are diets high in saturated fat and high salt, um, which influence cholesterol and blood pressure, which are known to be causal factors in heart disease. Um, The genetics and the environmental factors uh, act in an interplay. So I don't think we can divorce one from the other. Clearly one can modify our environment, you can modify your environment, you can't modify your genome. What the genetic studies do is they highlight those pathways and those environmental exposures that are causally related to disease. So they can actually give insight into the sorts of things that we should be modifying 
or treating with drugs to reduce disease risk. Where have we got to in terms of translating the things that we've discovered from these, these big studies into the clinic? How close are we to that? So there's probably two main areas where people are trying to uh, utilise genetic information to improve personal and public health. One is to try and use the information to try and better predict who's going to get uh, a cardiovascular event in later life. And the other is to use the information to understand the mechanisms of heart disease a little bit better. One problem with the, with the first translational opportunity, the use of genetic variants to try and improve prediction of future disease risk, is that the effects of each variant tends to be quite small. Now, of course, there are people in the population who carry a larger number of risk variants who are at higher risk of disease, but they tend to be relatively small in number. Most of us carry an intermediate number of risk variants that influence our risk of disease. A particularly exciting area, though, is the use of the genetic information to understand the mechanisms by which disease risk is in increased, because through understanding the mechanism, it should become possible to develop new therapies to treat or prevent heart disease risk. So how can you do that? How can you mine all this genetic data to find new targets? That's a really interesting question, and it's an area that we're, we're actively pursuing. Let me illustrate this with an example. Um, there are drugs called statins that are widely used in the treatment and prevention of, of cardiac disease, and they work by lowering LDL cholesterol, a risk factor for heart disease. So it turns out that when the genome-wide association studies were done, one of the genes that came up as being associated with an increased risk of disease was the gene that encodes the protein, which is the target of statin drugs. It's called HMG-CoA reductase. So one can do a sort of thought experiment and ask the question that if the drug hadn't been invented but the genetic information was known, that would have motivated the development of a drug of that type. So you were looking for people who naturally have lower levels of this and if they have a lower risk of heart disease you can go, oh, well maybe lowering that protein would work. Correct. So targeting that protein might be a good way of preventing heart disease in people who don't carry that variant. So we've been working, and others have as well, in trying to mine the genetic information from genome-wide association studies and try and utilise it to try and identify those pathways and proteins that might be most amenable to targeting with new treatments to reduce heart disease risk. What do you think are the most promising targets so far? What have you found in this data trove? So that's very much work in progress, but what I can say is that there are some exciting opportunities that we think will arise from, from this sort of activity. And I guess the challenge over the next five to ten years is to capture that information, prioritise it, because there's a lot of data there, it's a big data problem, uh, and to try and identify those proteins and pathways where the translational opportunity is, is foremost, ones that we could try and capture early on. Where have we come in recent decades in making an impact in improving outcomes in heart disease, and where would you like to see us go over the next, say, ten to twenty years? So it's interesting that there are, the, the, the epidemiology of cardiovascular disease is, is changing globally. So in high-income countries, there's actually been a fall in cardiovascular mortality through uh, better public health measures, better acute treatments and be better preventative treatments, and through a reduction in smoking. So public health measures have had a key role to play. But more people are living with the consequences of cardiovascular disease, including heart failure and arrhythmias. And actually, we do need new therapies for those disorders because there's a substantial unmet need in those areas. 
There's also a concern that in low and middle income countries, rates of cardiovascular disease are increasing and eventually may outstrip um, uh, infectious diseases. A particular concern is the uh, epidemic of obesity and uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, both of which are risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So in high and middle income countries we can say there's been some success but there are new challenges, people living with the consequences of heart disease, and in low and middle income countries there are increasing rates of heart disease which, which pose a challenge. That was Professor Arun Hingarani from UCL. Coming up later, we'll be finding out how gene faults contribute to other serious heart conditions, including sudden death. But now we're going to delve into this month's genetics news with science writer Nell Barry. What's the first story you've got for us this month? So this first story is a really interesting one. It's called the Cancer Genome Atlas, and the, the main part of it is the Pan-Cancer Initiative. So this is all sounding very exciting already. Basically, what this is all about is probing the genetic faults at the heart of several different types of cancer. And you might have noticed that the Cancer Genome Atlas, TCGA, it's the letters in DNA. I didn't even notice because it was so nerdy, but now that I have, I'm really enjoying it a lot. The idea is that they're looking at all the different types of genetic mutations you get across many different types of cancer and we're finding patterns. So this is really a part of this move away from classifying a cancer based on where it started in the body, moving to understanding exactly what mutations it has and starting to treat the cancer based on that, not based on where it started. They've just published this first group of papers, it's about 18 papers published in Nature Genetics and, and other journals, really getting to grips with some of these massive, massive data sets to look for patterns. What kind of things have they found? So it's really interesting because the, I suppose the first thing which we sort of suspected would be the case and has certainly been coming out in more and more studies is that different types of cancer, say, you know, breast cancers and bowel cancers may sometimes actually have the same mutations, which is great in one sense because it means that you could maybe be reusing drugs that have only been used for one type of cancer and starting to use them for another type of cancer. So that's great in terms of speeding up development of new treatments. But the other thing that's come out of this, which is kind of a bit more broad, is that you can actually divide mutated cancers into these two groups. So there's one type where the chromosomes are just completely messed up. And in the other group, it tends to be all these small point mutations that are messing with specific genes. So we're seeing some kind of pattern there in how these mutations are actually occurring in the cancer cells. And they're really interesting results when you, you get to grips with them. I mean, fascinating things like they found that some head and neck cancers were similar to about 10% of bladder cancers. They share the same gene faults. And that means you could potentially use the same treatments across those different types of cancer. And there's, there's big implications for treatment and also for clinical trials, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So instead of saying, OK, you've got bladder cancer, you're going to go on a bladder cancer trial, you would look straight away at the mutation and you can then really just build the trials around the types of mutations that you're trying to target rather than where the cancer started. And this could be really, really helpful because it might mean that you can pull out those small groups of patients who maybe don't benefit from current drugs and find something that is going to work for them and really start to pull out all that data from this interesting knowledge that we've got. And I think there's another group that could benefit, and that's patients who have a, a cancer called CUP or cancer of unknown primary. How could they benefit? Yeah, I think that I think that'd be really interesting for this because this is actually surprisingly common that somebody will be diagnosed with a cancer that's already spread, but the doctors can't find where it started. At the moment, this is a real problem because it means we can't decide how to treat those cancers. 
If instead you can just go straight to picking out these individual mutations and saying, right, well, this drug's definitely going to work, this one definitely isn't, it could mean that it may no longer be so much of a problem that you can't identify the place where the cancer began. So that could be really helpful. And CUP is actually, it's about 9,000 cases a year in the UK, so it's not an insignificant number. I think it's going to be a very exciting couple of years ahead of us. And one of the other stories I noticed this month is uh, from the Institute of Cancer Research, but it's not actually a cancer story. It's a really nice piece of work looking at stem cells. And what the researchers have done is incredibly fiddly. I could just imagine some, some poor PhD student or postdoc's life being ruined by this. But they've taken stem cells growing in, in the lab in a dish, embryonic stem cells, and they've watched as they divide and they've picked out the two new sister or daughter cells that have been created from one cell dividing, sucked each of them up separately and analysed all the genes that are switched on in those cells. It's incredible technical feat. And what they found was really fascinating because, you know, you'd expect two daughter cells that have just come from one cell to be the same. But actually, they had wildly different patterns of gene activity. And this is kind of weird, I think. Yeah, it's certainly not what you'd expect, especially when you're kind of picturing these two little cells. Surely they're exactly the same, but it turns out that they're not. And it's kind of almost the next level from the story we were just talking about. So you're not looking at the mutations, you're looking at more subtle changes to how the DNA is is expressed, how it's switched on. And it's really interesting to see that there's actually quite a lot of difference between two cells like that. And they're starting to get a handle on what's causing this difference because they, they treated the stem cells with a, a cocktail of chemicals, which is called 2i. And apparently this, this reverts the cells back to a more stem cell-like state. And it does this by interfering with a process called DNA methylation. And this is basically like putting kind of post-it notes on the DNA saying, don't use these genes, use these genes. And when you mess up that, they actually found that the stem cells were a lot more similar. And this is delving into the territory of epigenetics and showing that that's probably responsible for some of these differences. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really interesting because when, when you sort of start to get into learning a bit about DNA and you get all the stuff about, you know, all our cells in the body have the same genetic code and then you start to think, well, how come some of them do one thing and some of them do another thing? And this is really getting to the heart of that and helping us to understand how one stem cell can give rise to all these different types of cell that go on to do amazingly specialised things. So it has got some implications probably for some types of diseases, but Really, this is just kind of understanding the whole process at the fundamental level. I think it's absolutely fascinating and a, a real technical tour de force. And finally, tiny dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I love this story. Uh, this is researchers in Finland who have been investigating dwarfism in dogs. What have they found? So this was looking at two both very cute breeds of dog, as I discovered after a Google search. One called the Norwegian Elk Hound, which I think kind of looks like a really beefy Alsatian. And one called a Karelian Bear Dog, which looks like a beefy Border Collie. Uh, so, yeah, they found that uh, faults in a gene called ITGA10, it actually causes the dogs to be dwarfs. They have shorter limbs than normal dogs. They have lots of skeletal abnormalities. These poor little dogs. But now they've actually found this faulty gene. It turns out it also could be involved in human dwarfism syndromes that are similar. They're called chondrodysplasias. So I think this has got quite a lot of potential, this finding. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I guess it's, it's coming down to how the bones are developing and what's something that's gone wrong in that process and really starting to understand how that can affect the body. And I always just think it's really interesting that you can have a fault in just one gene that has such a big effect on an animal's physiology. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see 
how that's going to affect human diseases. And apparently they've already started looking at human patients to see if they might have similar mutations. And as far as the dog world goes as well, once you can test for this mutation, you can actually start to breed it out of the populations. So unfortunately, no more cute dwarf dogs, but hopefully healthier dogs as well. And now it's time to take a look at some of the rest of this month's top genetic stories. Writing in the journal Nature Communications, scientists in South Korea, along with colleagues as far-flung as Namibia, India and Mongolia, have analysed the genomes of a number of big cats, including the tiger, lion and snow leopard. The results reveal how the animals have evolved to be predatory killing machines that thrive on meaty diets. To date, the only other cat to have had its genome analysed is the domestic Moggy, which shares around 95% of its genes with a tiger. The researchers read DNA taken from animals living in zoos, creating a reference sequence that other big cats around the world can be compared against. The scientists hope that their work will support conservation efforts, allowing researchers to look at genetic diversity in big cat populations. Scientists in the US have used genetic techniques to solve a murder mystery in citrus trees. Trees in Florida have been suffering from a disease called citrus greening, or Hong Long Bing, which causes severe damage to leaves and fruit, eventually killing the tree, and it seems to be spreading. The disease is caused by bacteria, which are spread by little insects, but previous research has shown that the bacteria don't carry poisonous toxins, so how they caused the disease was a mystery. The scientists analysed patterns of gene activity in infected and non-infected trees and found that the bacteria cause changes that interfere with nutrient transport and production. They also interfere with the production of plant hormones, which are important for growth and fruiting. The researchers hope their findings will lead to better tests to pick up the disease at an earlier stage, so it can be prevented from spreading further. If you want to find out more about those stories, the references are all on our website. That's nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics Podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out what to do with the ends of DNA. But now it's time to take another look at the genetics of heart disease. Premiership footballer Fabrice Mwamba hit the headlines in 2012 when his heart stopped on the pitch for more than an hour. Incidents like this are usually due to inherited gene faults, which aren't often known about until disaster strikes. Professor Hugh Watkins at the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics in Oxford is trying to track them down. So I look at conditions that cause young people, uh, mostly kids, teenagers, young adults, to be at risk of catastrophic changes in the function of the heart that just cause you to drop down dead. And so they're uncommon, but not unheard of. You'll have seen them in, in the public eye. So when this happens in the public forum, often in sports, it's a young sports player, it's usually one of these familial conditions that, that causes it. And so by understanding these genes, this is directly changing the way that you work with families to, yeah. to do this. Yeah, absolutely. So when I go off to clinic, I will use DNA testing on a routine daily basis, and it completely transforms the way we do the work. So that, that's, that's very exciting. Some of these conditions are not very easy to diagnose by clinical tests. And so when you think someone's got one or you find they've definitely got one or as sometimes happens quite commonly as a tragedy, you only work out after they've died what they had, the question then comes, well, who else is at risk in the family? And because it's one gene that comes down from either your mum or your dad, by and large, each 
immediate family relative has a, has a 50-50 chance of that condition. And so what we now know is that for most of these conditions, and there are many different ones with long names, um, there's usually a bunch of genes that can do it. And in each gene, there will just be one gene change. So if we have a person who's definitely got the condition, we will do a, a fairly large genetic analysis for all the genes looking for that single spelling mistake and then if we can find it and be confident we have found it which isn't always easy that's a really powerful tool for then saying who in the family might be at risk and who isn't and the beauty of it is that if you don't have that gene change then you won't have the condition and you don't need to be followed up and nor do your kids so it's a very powerful way when there's been one of these alerting cases and sometimes a, a tragedy case to then work out who else we need to worry about and we've got quite good cardiology treatments for people if we can diagnose them with these conditions because it's all very well to to find genes and say oh you're at risk but if there's nothing you can do to intervene that's not helpful yeah. so this is this is great there's something you can do it is i mean if you had nothing to offer you probably wouldn't want to do this work at all you know you wouldn't want to tell somebody that they're at risk if you couldn't improve it if we find an individual who's clearly at high risk, we can implant a device, it's a glorified pacemaker, that sits there and monitors the heart. And if the patient has one of these sudden, um, chaotic, life-threatening heart rhythms, the machine will charge up and give an electric shock, just like you, you, know, you can see in the paddles in television um, dramas and casualty. Um, and that's life-saving. But these are complex, scary, sometimes dangerous devices that you don't want to use if you don't need to. So another part of that program of work has asked the question, now we know what the genes are and we can define what proteins that the genes code for, you'd think that would give us a clue as to what the disease pathway is. And, and that's a, a big thrust of our work and has gone quite a long way. And We now have some quite tangible and testable ideas and are beginning to do clinical trials of new treatments that are looking very promising. So that's one aspect of your work but another aspect is looking more broadly at, at heart disease and associated conditions to find the, the complex susceptibility genes. Where's that got to now? So that's um, a better story now than it was a few years ago. We started this work as did many groups um, in, in universities around the world probably Ooh, 10, 12, maybe even 15 years ago, and it's proved to be much harder than we thought. And the reason, as, as you will know, is that there's not one gene for heart attack or one gene for diabetes. There, there aren't 5, 10 or 20. There are hundreds and potentially thousands of genes or changes in genes that make people just very slightly more or less at risk. And so it's only recently that we've had powerful enough genetic tools and big enough clinical studies that we can begin to find genes. And actually are now doing analyses on tens of thousands of patients. And when you do that, then you do find these genes. And, and our list at the moment in terms of what we published is, is around 46 newly identified genes, which make you a bit more likely to have a heart attack. And it's exciting because they're not, by and large, um, the obvious genes we would have guessed. So some of them are. Some of them are genes that regulate um, how you handle cholesterol in the body. And it's reassuring that, you know, we, we get those positive controls. Some of them, we thought we knew what the gene did or the, the protein that it codes for did, but wouldn't have guessed it was involved in coronary disease and heart attacks. So that's 
quite surprising. And a fair number of them, we have no idea what they do. And so that's good and bad. The, the good news is that there's a lot of opportunity for new biology. And if we can understand new pathways that cause you to have a heart attack, there's lots of scope there for new drugs and medicines to stop it. I mean, there's this sort of idea that you'll be able to have a, a genome scan and we'll know your risk and you do this and take this drug and, and do that and yeah. you'll never get heart disease. Yeah, it, it's, it's quite a, a nice dream. It's a bit of a pipe dream. If you unpack all the, the sort of two or three components of, of that aspiration, one was that you could do the genome scan and predict an individual's risk. That's not looking very effective at the moment. So most of us are fairly average in our genetic risk. So if you take someone in a clinic and look at their hundreds of genes that contribute their risk, they're not very likely to be very high or very low. If you do the whole population, you'd find people that were high and low, and that might work, but for the individual, it doesn't work so well. And then the other thing is we've already got pretty good tools. They're not perfect, but very powerful effects, age, gender, smoking, cholesterol, um, blood pressure, diabetes, are really quite strong predictors of heart risk. It's quite a high ask for genetics to, to make that better. So at the moment, I don't think we look at this complex genetics as a tool for prediction, but rather it's a tool for maybe classifying people into broad groups, but particularly for trying to come up with new targets and new treatments. And I'm very optimistic it will work, but actually that it, that it will take time. That was Professor Hugh Watkins from the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics. And now it's time to look at your genetics questions. Richard Thornley asks, what is the very first and last piece of DNA on the chain responsible for? Is it a marker or solely to indicate the ends? To answer, here's Dr Jessica Greenwood from the Telomere Biology Lab at the Cancer Research UK London Research Institute. I really like this question because it highlights the fact that the ends of the DNA, called telomeres, actually have a number of important responsibilities, one of which is to indicate the end. So first, what is a telomere? Uh, a telomere is a structure found at the end of the DNA in all organisms with linear chromosomes. In most organisms, the underlying foundation for the telomere is the DNA sequence, which is a unique stretch of short repeats. And this DNA does not contain genes that code for protein, but it does create a unique region in the DNA upon which telomere-specific proteins bind and form the telomere. And it's the very fact that the cell knows that the telomere is the end that protects the end itself and therefore the entire genome. You see, the cell is always on the lookout for breaks in the DNA chain. And when a break is discovered, the cell acts quickly to repair it by sealing broken ends back together. And if it weren't for the telomeres indicating that to the cell that the end was an end, the cell might be under the mistaken impression that the end was in fact a break. And then this would be extremely dangerous because the cell, if the cell attempted to repair the end, it could seal it to another chromosome end and the chromosomes would get stuck to each other in this manner. It would lead to serious problems when the cell tried to divide and separate its DNA into daughter cells. So end protection or capping, as it's known, is an absolutely critical role for the telomere. Um, but there's another equally important job for the telomere, and that is to help guide the enzyme that adds the unique DNA sequence to the ends called telomerase. Because your cells are, well, many of your cells are, are constantly making more of themselves, they prepare for this by copying their DNA and then dividing it in, so that one copy ends up in each daughter cell. The copying of the DNA is not completely perfect. At each time a copy is made, a little bit on the end is missed. And while this uh, may sound like a bad thing, it's actually another built-in safety device to impose a lifespan on ourselves because we don't want ourselves to just be able to divide without end. 
Um, so most of our healthy cells actually have turned off telomerase because we don't want them to be able to keep dividing. And cancer cells have found a way to reactivate telomerase. And this unfortunately allows the cells to continue to make copies of itself. So you can see that actually the, the end, the telomere, does have a number of important roles in protecting the cell, um, both in survival and making sure that it doesn't get out of control. Thanks to Dr. Jessica Greenwood from the Cancer Research UK Telomere Biology Lab. And if you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics you'd like us to answer, just email them to me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. And finally, our gene of the month is one for all you hopeless romantics out there. It's Lonely Heart. Only discovered this year, Lonely Heart is a fruit fly gene that's involved, as you might have guessed, in building their tiny hearts. Loss of the gene leads to heart damage and eventually, in the words of the scientific paper describing it, abolishment of heart function. Lonely Heart carries the instructions to make a protein that helps to make a kind of molecular glue that holds together the muscle of the fly's heart and the sheath that surrounds it. When this glue breaks down, the heartbeat becomes irregular and everything starts to go wrong. There are other proteins related to Lonely Heart out there, but it's not clear exactly what they do, so perhaps they're also involved in creating molecular glue too. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month, reporting back from the Genetic Society's autumn meeting, looking at how the information in genes is interpreted to create biological shapes. It's happening at the Royal Society on the 7th and 8th of November, and if you want to go, just register now at genetics.org.uk. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. Genetics.